Townley. Ben Webern. Welcome to your cozy zone. Thank you. Welcome to my cozy zone. Thank ben. you. Where where are we right now? Well, we're at in the in the public lounge of the Marlton Hotel uh, in in the village. It's sort of like a, I don't know how you would even describe it. It's it's cozy but it kind of has like a vic- semi Victorian oppressive vibe. <laughs> Uh, we're as we're as relaxed as we dare, given the dictates of the f- furnishings. Uh, there's like a fire, like tattered upholstery, glass tabletops, plush curtains. It's a nice place where you can come and order a coffee, uh, have some gluten-free, jam-filled cake if you want. Oh wow! Uh, we could do that. I think, yeah. Uh, I would love to do that. And, you know, do some work, have meetings. Yeah. Spy the odd celebrity coming <laughs> to the... <laughs> Who have you seen here? Uh, Yoko Ono. Oh, wow. <laughs> she comes a lot. Cool. Do you do you chatter up? Or? Well, we have a couple of irons in the fire. She and, no, I've never spoken <laughs> I'd be terrified. I was born in upstate New York oh. in a town called Circleville, just outside of a town called Bullville. <laughs> Circleville and Bullville? Bull, yeah, like the bull. Like, I strong like Bullville. Yeah, a bunch of places no one ever wanted to go to on purpose. But if you find yourself raising a family there, you just roll with it. Uh, so I lived there till I was four. And my mom was like, this is fucked. Get me out of this dump. And her brother, my uncle Donovan, had just moved to Boulder, Colorado. And this is like the early 80s. So it was like a hotbed of like color healing and crystal therapy and like channeling animal spirits and actually that's why he left his wife because she was channeling a chipmunk (laughs) and he was like this is too much even for boulder standards anyway so oh my god so my mom was like can we just go to boulder so my dad just wanting to make my mom happy did so we moved there and i was four and i just had this feeling that we had we had zigged when we should have zagged i was like this doesn't seem right anyway so we lived there my brother was born there and um i lived there till i was 17 and then i was like bye-bye bye-bye <laughs> i'm going back to new york where i belong but not to circleville to no. manhattan yes where we are today i met you i think i met you at meg griffith's and happy anderson's wedding i think we then maybe followed each other on the social medias mm-hmm. and didn't didn't uh, connect again no. until like a few weeks ago. Yeah, you came into uh, the meditation class. Yes. I was, I was teaching. Yes. Of all the meditation joints in Williamsburg, there might be a lot of them actually. I'm not sure. <laughs> Maybe it's just one. Yeah. Uh, and I, yeah, I loved your class so much. Well, thank you. Um, you know, so as, as I follow you on social media, you know, you are, I, I know that you are a man who exudes fabulousness and, 
class. Okay. Uh, and so, you know, I'm a, I'm a fan. I was a fan from afar. I've been teaching at this meditation studio for a little over a year now. A friend of mine started it. Uh, it's called Mindful or Mindful. It's Mindful with no vowels. Uh, and so what I've been kind of getting in touch with myself as like a creative person is that I think the place that real like that the the impulse to like create anything whatever it happens to be comes from like such a like vulnerable queasy raw like timid place and it's very sweet in a way it's like almost like you know after the kid has had his like stick drawing like slammed by somebody, they're like, "Oh wait, I just can't do anything." All right. So then the next time they try something, they're like, uh-huh. uh, "This? How about this?" And and I think that like as a rule, we what? So how that ties into meditation practice, I think, is that when we start to like sit and place our attention on something other than like our discursive thinking like planning and regretting and all that sort of stuff which is fine there's no no nothing wrong with it we start to get in touch with this underlying queasiness this feeling of like this is what's happening who's driving the bus there's like no and the answer is no one's driving the bus in a way and and so typically in our day-to-day lives when we start feeling queasy we try to do something to feel better like it's like some kind of a, a palliative, whether it's like watch an erotic video, go running, volunteer, eat cake, watch, you know, binge watch something, pick up a novel, clip our nails, whatever it happens to be. We're always trying to move away from that feeling. And in meditation practice, it's actually just relaxing with feeling like shit. Yeah. <laughs> it's like yeah. it's willingly feeling uncomfortable. Absolutely. Yeah. And that by doing that, you like, re- you don't like not feel uncomfortable. You just realize it's not that big of a deal. Right. And so that you can then maybe do, you know, do something if you like, but that it comes from like a true desire or inspiration to do that thing for its sake rather than a way, than as a way of escaping your underlying dread of reality. I find that so challenging. Like I, I'm relatively new to meditation. I downloaded Headspace. Oh yeah. I'm doing that and and uh, f- frequent mindful as much as possible. Uh-huh. Um, and it is yeah that what you're describing like sitting with that shitty feeling that discomfort is so intense, and so and it's hard. Awful. Yeah. Our uh, entire like personalities. Many of us are constructed to protect us yeah. from from that feeling. Yeah. And in our whole culture in many ways is designed to protect us from that reality of groundlessness, which is the moment-to-moment undercurrent of, of life. It's like this subterranean aquifer of dread. Yeah. <laughs> And, and what's really interesting is like, you know, many, I, I feel close to a lot of the sort of escapes that you mentioned, like binge watching shows or, you know, yeah. uh, you know, uh, consuming content yeah. of some kind. And, you know, as uh, I imagine you identify as a creative person. Uh, yeah. Yeah. What, what are your art forms? Oh, Jesus. Uh, well, 
there's this whenever anyone asks me what I do I like start to sweat first of all I okay. feel ill okay and I don't I'm, I'm going to answer you but I'm just like explaining <laughs> my reaction because like I'm like oh, I don't know and as a child my father was like thrilled with my creativity and was like very supportive I'm lucky in that way but like when people would be like, so what does Kevin do? And he's like, why don't you ask him? And then I completely like shut down, like the portcullis comes crashing down. I'm like, uh. And he's like, T why don't you tell them what you do? And I'm like, well, I don't do anything, I don't exist. And he's like, well, he sings and he acts and he just did a drawing and I got an award. And I was like sixth grade, no big deal. <laughs> Great. And so, like, I meanwhile like want to die, but my dad thinks he's like helping me. So, <laughs> so anyway, uh, I I sing. I did a, <laughs> did a drawing. It's great. I got an award. I do sing. I, I'm in a theater group called Waterwell. I've been involved with them for about ten years. Jesus Christ, ten years. <clears throat> uh, so I'm, I'm an actor as well. I've done you know some lots of theater, some film and TV and. Uh, I've done some writing. Uh, I was on an improv team for a number of years. With uh, we shared a slot with Meg's team at the at the pit, <coughs> Meg Griffith's team, and uh, we we were called Fancy Dragon, Amazing. named after a delicious roll that you could have gotten at the Japanese restaurant below the pit at the time. Um, and you know I've dabbled in you know watercolor. I'm not good at it, but you know I, I enjoyed doing that. So, uh, writing music, I was in a band for a lot of years called Bambi with uh, some friends. And uh, so, just just a, lo a lot of things. And so, I, if I were to like tell you what that meant, I mean, I would say like, I'm a creative person, but I don't like get a sense of myself as like being an actor. In fact, that makes me want to throw up on myself or like even being a writer I worry about writing a lot I'm a, maybe I'm a worrier <laughs> <laughs> I, I feel very close to that uh, I also worry so much about all the things that I'm working on and, and I mean I the question that is that is percolating in my mind is 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 a creative impulse a part of these these distractions that we use, these soothing actions to, to get away from these hard feelings. I think it can be, but I also think it can be not. I think that I was thinking about, I, I've been teaching this, co-teaching this devising theater class at the new school. We were talking today about James Joyce, where I mentioned this quote he had, which I am paraphrasing, but he was like, you know, there are three kinds of art. Who knows? Maybe they're not. I don't know. This is what he said. He's dead. He can't defend himself. But he basically said, if memory serves, that uh, there's pornography. So any art that makes you want to possess it. So if it's like a photo, like you could say that all advertising is pornography. Uh, any reality television show that makes you wish that you were like one of the real housewives is pornography uh anything that, or any painting anything that you're like oh i wish that was at my house porn even if it's a van gogh uh then there is 
didactic art. So some, you know, someone's like beating you over the head with their political view through their play or film or whatever. Uh, and then thirdly, he said that there was like true art or, you know, genuine art. And that genuine art is something that stops your mind. And you simply behold the thing on its terms as it is without like wanting to possess it, without feeling repulsed by it. Uh, and you just let, allow it, you appreciate it in a way. So I, I think about that and I think there's also this Tibetan uh, meditation master named Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche who started the Shambhala lineage of Buddhism. And he talked a lot about art. Uh, was an artist. In fact, more than a meditation master, even a spiritual leader, a lot of people think he's like an artist. And he talked about like neurotic art and that we can use our creative mediums as a way to like barf our own neurosis out onto the world or to uh, try to like lasso people into our neurotic corral to corroborate and reify our own mental illness <laughs> to use a phrase uh, and so so that creativity can do that for ourselves like we can be you know I don't whatever that might look like and but similarly creativity can also be a way of uh, expressing the the pain or confusion of the human experience uh, without pressing an agenda, but simply like presenting it. I mean, I'm getting into onto thin ice here because you know I'm not telling anybody what to do or not to do. But it's something that I, I think about, like, oh, when I like exp when I'm expressing this idea, am I exp am I like sharing this idea because it's arising from my subconscious or whatever and is it a way of like exploring the human condition creating a dialogue with humanity or am I just trying to like convince other people that my craziness is actually sanity <laughs> through my art I I mean this I imagine the challenging sort of edge of that sore that you presented the barfing your neuroses onto the world or lassoing people together I feel so close to that like I I have like some stuff I want to make like is ex could exactly be categorized in that way um, but I also think like sorry to interrupt no no but like that's not to say that like show, doing a piece of work that's like about murder or revenge schemes or whatever is like neurotic art right like we can we have the full scope of human experience at our fingertips and we should be able to explore and create based on whatever yeah but it's almost like seeing what our intention behind it is yeah i don't necessarily think that sharing your specific personal anguish or confusion is barfing your neurosis on somebody yeah it's sharing uh, your slice of the pie yeah. with other people that, and you know, whether people are in monogamous relationships or single or whatever, everyone knows what the confusion of trying to like relate to another human being is. 
And that to me isn't neurotic. Like what would be neurotic is like structuring an entire story to like prove that this is like, that your point of view is the right one. I see. And sometimes like we use art to like even know what our point of view is. Yeah. And I think that's valid. Absolutely. Like, yeah. Joan Didion said that she writes to figure out what she thinks about things. Yeah. And, uh, you know, while they, the result in her case is like very pointed yeah. in many ways, uh, it doesn't seem like neurotic. It seems like clear, cultivating clear seeing mm. through contemplation, reflection, and having the courage to like really go knee deep or elbow deep in your own shit. <laughs> yeah. That's very like genuinely reassuring. <laughs> like, thank you. When we pull on a thread, we don't know what it's connected to. Yeah. And we don't know what the results are going to be. So to like say, like, I'm not going to like explore a short story because so-and-so might hypothetically be offended by the potential conversation is more to me. And I do that too, is more just like a way of not going there for right. yourself. Right. Because it's scary. It is scary. Can you talk about how you make stuff? Well, one one writer that I that's been really helpful for me. He's a man named Robert Olin Butler. He's a Pulitzer Prize winner. Clunk. <laughs> Award dropping. Uh, but he wrote this book called From Where You Dream. And it's about the creative writing process. And what he, he's, he's a teacher at FSU. I almost considered like going to college to like study with him, but I'm not moving to Florida. Not for nobody. Uh, anyway, so what he talks about in this book is that like when you're, whatever that creative impulse is, that when you are, you might have like a lot of theory behind what you're doing, a lot of like big ideas, but then, but when you're an artist, your medium cuts through the, the cerebral theorizing. If you're a dancer, a painter, a musician, the medium inherently cuts through that sort of over-intellectualizing. Like Miles Davis, he says, you know, might have like a lot of theory behind what he's doing and why, but when he gets on his horn, it's just sound. And it may evoke feelings and what have you, but, that, but it's not an intellectual experience. Writers, however, are kind of fucked because the tool that you're using is language and language is inherently intellectual. And so it's very easy for writers to get mired down in, by that intellectual, analytical, generalizing, abstracting mind that is actually designed to protect us from going to that queasy weird place that we want to avoid. And so his theory is that you basically, that real creativity, real art, comes from what he calls like the white hot center of your being, like, which is also like your unconscious, or from where you dream, as the title of the book is called. And that our entire ego structure is designed to protect ourselves from that, because for many of us, he says, the unconscious is hell. 
it's painful. And so we have to create techniques to basically trick the mind into a trance so that we can access this creative uh, white hot center, which is also in a dark place. We'll just run, roll with that. Uh, so that we can write from that place. Um, so to me, that's A, terrifying, but also helpful because I tend to like get obsessed with like, I don't have any ideas. I don't know what my ideas are. And in fact, he completely inveighs against using that word. Like he's like, stop saying you have an idea for a story. It's a way of like intellectualizing what is going on. And he like, some people find this a little snooty, but he kind of makes a distinction between like entertainment and literature as art. So like he might say, like a traditional mystery novelist might like completely scaffold the whole thing, work backwards, know like who did it and then, you know, do that. And he's like, that's fine, but that's entertainment. It's designed to have a specific effect on the audience and what he's saying is that you don't need to do that. And he actually has written in all genres, weirdly. I, I would love to ask him about how he crafts like a suspense novel from this like weird subconscious <laughs> land. But um, so he says uh, that you're allowing the creative force to uh, lead the way. And he says that what separates an artist from like... A, a, a civilian, a layperson, is that artists are always making connections between seemingly unrelated things uh, on an unconscious level because what we're trying to do is make order out of the chaos of reality. And so he has a couple of like tools that he offers, which I use uh, for working on a, a project. So one is to work with note cards so he says like rather than being like this is my idea for a thing and like outlining uh, he says you just start noticing what you notice in your day-to-day -day life like just things so like for me recently I don't know what it is maybe it's like all of this like Russian stuff in the news I just got like this yen to listen to the soundtrack to chess <laughs> the musical <laughs> which is like when I was a kid I was like as deep as my east-west political understanding. I still don't even know what the story of Chess the Musical is. I have no clue. But it's fun to listen to Elaine pa Page belt out to, synth to ABBA music. Anyway, so I've just been listening to, to Chess. So I was away, and, and like one of the lyrics from One Night in Bangkok mentions like Tyrolean something. You know, that's where there was like a, some chess thing. So I, anyway, I went to, to Providence. On, I was invited to read, like do this reading there at Brown. And they put me up in a hotel. I turned on the television, which because I, I don't have cable. And I was like, oh, th the Hallmark Channel immediately. Oh, yes. Because they have like mystery. I like a mystery. Uh -huh. And Columbo was on. And the whole theme of the thing is chess. I was like, that is like weird, but whatever. So it's like a, a chess themed mystery and then uh then my hosts were t took me out to dinner we passed by this nutty building it was like crazy weird uh architecture i was like what the hell is that crazy ass building that's like oh it's like tyrolean architecture i was like what so he here i've like noticed this weird word twice hearing chess weirdly meant you know it, so what does it, it doesn't mean anything 
but my unconscious mind is like, ah, chess, Tyrolean. So those are things that I would write on a note card. On one note card, I would just write chess. And on another note card, I write Tyrolean or Tyrolean architecture. I don't even know what that word means. I'm maybe mispronouncing it. And then I would maybe write like Cold War on another thing. So the idea is that you just start noticing the things that you notice. It might even be like a dog in a pink sweater. Uh, you know, wh whatever. And after New Year's, it's all, I'm always noticing like vomit frozen in ice. I'm like, that's, is that our legacy? Anyway, so <laughs> so the idea is that you just write this shit, whatever you notice on a, on a note card. You're not, it's not even a writing exercise. You're not like the torpid whatever. It's just like the thing, noticing. And he says like over a couple of weeks, you start, you can then like maybe even months, you take your stack of note cards out, you lay them out and you're like weird that I've like noticed chess. I saw like a a Bobby Fischer documentary that my friend dragged me to. Uh, I watched this John, Le like John Le Carre was on being interviewed, you know, all these sort of suddenly like there's like this East West spy thing and like alcohol abuse. And so then <laughs> what, so then like, what does that like start to like jog in your mind? So then you're starting to make connections based on what you're already noticing rather than forcing some like, cerebral agenda so then of course you can use that sort of uh, the themes that are arising to then maybe think see if a character is ar arising and and so what he recommends then is like not to write until you connect with your character's sense of yearning wow so that there's like a deep desire that every character in, in, in a story, whatever the medium, has. And that like the writing comes from this feeling of, of yearning. And to me, I think that's the most evocative part because in, in, in Buddhism, what they, what, what's talked about a lot, is, or at least in Shambhala Buddhism is what's called the genuine heart of sadness, this sort of feeling of like being touched by the world and it's like fabulous and magical and fucked up and heartbreaking. And so it's a combination of uh, beautiful and tragic, that there's a bitter sweetness to life and that that's actually the state of mind that we cultivate when we, when we connect with the meditation practice long-term is this sort of sadness but with a you know like a smile with a you know a, a glint of you know a tear in your eye that sort of a thing and it's that that openness that we're getting in touch with I think when we like have the courage to investigate our creative process as well and it's what uh, is being sort of titillated and uh, stimulated those antennae are being uh, touched by the world that we're in it's not something elsewhere but it's right here and so uh, so again the sense of this this yearning I think that we have to create in general is also reflected in the character that we're giving voice to in the story and so if we come from that place I think even if the character is like you know Joseph Goebbels or whatever 
great, <laughs> great story. <laughs> that even a psychopath has a yearning, and yeah. they, that that is not separate from hu- humanity. It's not something we want to cultivate or encourage, but it's also something that we can explore and give a voice to in our work without being neurotic. So anyway, so I, I use like the note card thing. I use this idea of, of trying to connect to yearning because, uh, or then another, another thing that he, he does is like if you've got, it's sort of like free associative, uh, he calls it dream storming. You know, it's not the greatest whatever but instead of like brainstorming where you'd be like okay this is my idea and then this is the character and this is what he wants and blah 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 there's that aspect to it but you basically he he encourages you to listen to music while you're doing this uh you know whatever gets you in the cozy zone Mm -hmm. trademark and uh and then you just think about your character and get in touch with the yearning of the character and then imagine different scenarios that this person might be in uh, and you just like jot down on a, you know, on a notepad, like, you know, uh, walking through the farmer's market, whatever. And you just try to think of as many scenarios that this might be in this story and you leave them. And then when you're sort of like tapped out of scenarios, what might be eight weeks, who knows how long. You then, again, go back to your list and you write each scenario down on a note card and then you arrange them in an order that seems more or less to tell some kind of a story and you can, like, rearrange them. And then, But then you would maybe start writing from that point. So you're not just, like, a draft horse writer where you're pounding out, like, I don't know where this is going, but by God, we'll do it. It's like a thankless existence. Uh, but you're also not, like, going in being like, this is what it is. You're allowing it to reveal itself to you, but also giving yourself some sort of a framework so you're not like just completely floating out to sea with a wish and a prayer. I think what's really standing out for me is this idea that you as artists are like your existence is productive. Like just the way that you are, the way that you move through the world is enough. Yes. And that like you have all the tools of, uh, you know, all the inspiration is there and, or like you are seeing it always and the connections that you are making are, are correct and right and productive and fruitful. And it's really like, I, I am so, excited to hear about this and I I think you know I I spent so much time like trying to like really squeeze it out like and really push and force and like you know try and like you know put my put my finger on my temple and really like think it all through but there's so much like letting go here that you're talking about and it's just like no matter what I do will lead me to where I need to go Right, that, right, because we often think that like our creativity or what or whatever it is that we yearn for is like outside of us. Yeah, and that you know, I'll start my project just as soon as I know about you know Descartes' method of doubt. Then I can write my thing. It's actually something I said to myself. <laughs> <laughs> we can talk about that later. It's a thrill. Uh, and and yeah, exactly. It's about letting go because basically what's happening I think which is what's so scary is that like these connections are arising but we don't feel like we particularly 
own them or that we've like done them like so it's not very flattering to our ego but I mean the ego doesn't really exist anyway it's right. just like some idea we made up yeah and so to me it's greatly gratifying because when it's like that that strangulation that like boa constrictor approach to getting the creativity out it's just like begins to feel like an obstructed bowel or something and there's no need for it but in my experience it's sort of like the question then arises like okay like well who's doing this where's it coming from and who knows? I mean, I think that's a question that people have been asking for Evs, and there doesn't have to be an, an answer. There's also this great essay that, again, that Chogyam Trungpa wrote, or it was probably a talk, and he talks about like he being an artist as like a way of identifying yourself, and he's like kind of poo-poo's it. He's like, if you had to write on your like. CV or whatever, what your occupation was, it's more dignified to write businesswoman or housewife than it is to write artist. Because an art, because his point of view is that being an artist isn't something you do sometimes. It's a way of living life. And that that's why I also like this Robert Olin Buller thing. It's like saying like, oh, how I'm moving through the world, what I notice, what interests me, it's all my artwork it's all a part of this creative process and so it's not like a credential or an occupation even it's a way of living your life and so that you then stop creating these illusory uh, lines of demarcation in your life between like this is my creative life and then this is everything else and so then in theory I'm not that this is not what I do by the way but I aspire to it, but like, you know, you, you would keep your house in the same way that you would, you know, treat your creative practice and you would also treat like your relationships, not in like as a creative practice, but not from the sense of like, what happens if I just throw paint on her <laughs> or like get crazy, uh, but by authentically uh, moving through your life in this in this way I mean that's something to, that I aspire to I I really really love that and it feels so timely like I I'm always so grateful and amazed the the people who you know let me do a cozy zone with them like it's always like just the perfect time and like it, I don't know. You are sharing so much. Like I am, I am like learning a lot. <laughs> I feel, I feel very, very moved and like inspired. And uh, I just want to say thanks. Oh, my pleasure. Yeah, in the middle of this, it does make me want to like now when people ask me what I do to say that I'm a businesswoman. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I want to. <laughs> when I started like dealing with like depression or in astrological terms, my Saturn return. Ah, uh, yes. Uh, and and my drinking kind of got a little bit out of control, and I had, like, had a bad breakup that I was sort of, like, obsessing over and plotting elaborate revenge schemes and so on. I, 
I just kind of like got to this point of like acute self-perpetuated suffering that I didn't know how to like get out of it. And so I just like, for some reason, Googled like meditation. I was like, that's the thing people do. I mean, there, there doesn't seem to be any escaping this. So what, I don't even know what this means. My dad meditated. My mom spoke in tongues. <laughs> it's like a country song. <laughs> so I was like, well, you know, I'm going to Google this meditation and heartbreak. That's what I Googled. And a book came up. It's called The Wisdom of a Broken Heart by a woman named Susan Piver. And at the time, my friend Elna Baker and I were doing this variety show called The, the Talent Show. And it's like a themed talent, uh, variety show. So we, we would pick like, I don't know, whatever our themes were like. In this case, we picked heartbreak as a theme. And so so I had read the book, and I actually got a lot out of it. And it's actually, the book is actually about using like romantic heartbreak as a, path, a spiritual path, like not as separate, but as a path into this kind of heartbroken quality that we were talking about before, that that is, it's giving you like express train, a cello ride into that raw place that many people spend many years of meditating trying to access. And this is like putting you right down in the hotbed of it in the center of the volcano. So the idea is that through meditation practice, you can steady and stabilize your mind while staying in a broken, open, vulnerable place. That's what we're trying to do. So I emailed this woman, or, uh, or I found her website. I was like, oh, I don't know, I read your book. Uh, we're doing this show. I don't know if you live in New York. Would you come? Let me interview you. And she was like, I live in Boston, but yeah, I'll come. So she drove down. She let me interview her. And then she was like, well, how is your meditation practice? And I was like, I don't really have one. I don't know what that is. She was like, okay, well, I'm going to be your meditation teacher then. You know, we can check in on the phone and so on. And so that was really how I got in into this whole thing. So I went to a couple of retreats uh, at the Shambhala Center and then got, uh, I, I was like laid off from work at the time. So I was like, had a lot of free time. And uh, so I just got really involved in the curriculum at the Shambhala Center. And it showed me that it was already kind of like how I thought, but that that had a name which happened to be Buddhism. I was like, oh, <laughs> someone else sorted all of this out for me um, and so it was through my meditation practice that I saw that I had a drinking problem because whenever because you know as we're sitting we get in touch with this queasy not okay feeling or this restlessness and so sitting down and like not getting up just sitting with that I started to feel, familiarize myself with that on the cushion. But then in life, when I would start to feel like, remember my ex? Well, I was like, well, on the cushion, when I remember my ex, I don't like jump out the window, though I might want to. So in life, I'm starting to notice that when I think of my ex, I'm like going for a drink. And so I'm just connecting the dots. I mean, that any idiot outside of my head was like, yeah, we kind of could tell that. <laughs> that was pretty obvious. Uh, but for me, it was like really seeing it that created then this feel that I could see like I was not only hurting myself, I was hurting my friends. I was saying like nasty things. I was having to make a call and apologize the next day all the time. Like in my 30s, it's like get a grip. It's pathetic. So I became 
we, I found a sense of revulsion for this like behavior. And so then I was like, I gotta like get my shit together. All right, Kevin. So, uh, I want to let you know that I, uh, I'm actually the development assistant for, um, an extremely well endowed, uh, foundation. Oh, it's called the cozy zone foundation. Oh yeah. And they, uh, they have billions and billions and billions of dollars in their endowment. And the purpose of the foundation is to fund um, collaborative art projects. Um, and they, they spare no expense. So, oh, yeah. you know, the, you. the call is, you know, artists can dream as big as they want. There's essentially unlimited funds for these projects. And I'm really happy to say that uh, I have the opportunity to invite you oh to create a project with me. This is fabulous. Yeah. Uh, and, I just have to say, like, I know, like, I'm going to go back and listen to this and, like, think about, like, how I can enrich my own creative life. Like, this this has been such a soothing, nourishing, like, exciting <laughs> uh, time together. And I just, I, I'm filled with so much gratitude. And I'm so excited to, like, jam with you and figure out, like, what what is the Kevin Townley, Ben Weber, Cozy Zone Foundation project? I really like fake things. I really like, for I don't know why it is, but like as a child, like I loved hanging out in the fake living rooms at Sears or like JCPenney's. Okay. Very satisfying to me. We moved around a lot. And so like this, I could imagine like what like a real home would look like, even though these were all completely fabricated. Of course. And, and I think I also really like old cinema because like, I'm I'm probably the only person who will say this to you, but I really like Hitchcock films. Did I just blow your mind? No, that's... No, I'm kidding. Lots yeah, of people do. Yeah, but, yeah. <laughs> uh, but I like them because they're so, like, phony. They're, yeah. like, completely constructed. Now, he... I don't, he, I, I don't think he... I don't know how he... Cr- I mean, I do know some of how he created. I don't know where it falls in the line of neurosis. I mean, I th- in a way, I think all of his films are completely neurotic sure. in their way. Uh, but I still enjoy them. And there's kind of like a, this sort of feeling of like safety in this fabricated artifice and and like or like old kind of like old style acting mm. like I really like Betty Davis because somehow like she's completely like over the top and you can see that she's acting yes there's no question about it but there's actually like real human emotion and truth behind it yes but she's letting you know the whole time that it's not real right whereas now there's like this whole movement of like you know, like in waiting for government, she's like, well, this is more kind of acting, but I'm <laughs> only looking at the camera when I'm not speaking. <laughs> you know, there's like that real train of like real, like this is really yeah, real acting. Yeah. There's like that movie Weekend that came out, that, that gay romance oh, movie yeah. that people mm-hmm. love. It's like a great movie, but it's yeah. like you could attach electrodes to the genitals of those actors and their faces would not move because they're just... Just they're just in the so, real. Just they're so real. So they're real. So, so real. So still, they're barely co- cognizant. Yeah. <laughs> so that kind of thing, like, actually makes me furious. Yeah. <laughs> and so, because like, actually, compared to like Betty Davis, they're the ones who are lying because they are acting, but they're pretending that they aren't. Right. And so, I like acting is, you know, behaving realistically in false situation or whatever circumstances. But, uh, 
but it's still make-believe. And so I like seeing the make-believe because it's reminding you that it's fabricated, but that there can be truth in that sort of fabrication. So this is a long-winded way of saying that with our cozy zone zillions, I would create an like an old style like sound stage. Okay. And that we would make like films, filmed stories. Yes. Also known as movies. Yes. But <laughs> only on the sound stage, using like rear projection and uh, you know back painted oh, backdrops great. and yeah. all of that sort of a thing. I really, I really like that. I, I feel quite close to that. It's something that you were saying a lot that felt really true to me is you had a lot of language about like barfing up your neuroses and, and meditation is like sitting with the queasiness and the nausea. And like for me, like my, like many, many years, like most of the years of my childhood was like me rendering the stress that I was experiencing from the outside world mm -hmm. into like physical sick, like in my yeah. gut. Yeah. Um, and so like that, I feel like for me, like my bid is like in this like filmed story land, like this epic soundstage that yeah. I think, I mean, I'm, I'm sort of picturing like Synecdoche, New York, like this, Great. you know, this huge, like huge thing that like is constantly moving and morphing around these, these crazy people who are acting, you know, as big as, and as hard as they can. But there has to be like, I don't know, there, I, I really want to, if, if there's a way to bring in like nausea or like physical illness like like stomach yeah. stomach issues make it put it on a boat great <laughs> like, but but like a the boat in it has to be in the sound stage yeah well, there are tanks sure you know like lifeboat yeah the, the do you get seasick i don't really go on boats yeah i don't really i i think i might have gotten seasick before i did get sick on a ride once mm. uh, at an amusement park yeah I had eaten a lot of the museum, uh, the not museum, the uh, amu amusement park junk food, yes. and then got on what was it was called the casino. It was like a roulette wheel, oh and then it kind of like goes side to side and up and down and in a big circle. And I vomited onto the roulette wheel, and it hit like everybody. Oh on the wheel. yes! So I felt bad about that for about five minutes. Yeah, and then it was I wonder. Hilarious. Yeah, maybe like. I, I just, I wanted to just sort of put that out there that like I'm thinking about like nausea. The image I also had is sort of like this runway kind of thing, right? Where like there's like, it's a very, very long like point A to point B and the, the actors are sort of constantly moving along this one line and sort of everything is kind of happening like in like people are kind of like Russian arc style too like mm. where like people are pulling the sets and do you know getting everything ready while they're just sort of like barreling down this very long path I like that idea yeah it's also sort of evokes like um, the ride at Epcot Center mm. it's like I think it's I mean I went like 20 years ago but it's like in that weird geodesic dome okay. thing uh -huh. and you basically are like in a little cart that goes you know elliptically up the side and and you're like passing different vignettes so it could be like that 
I love that. And I'm, I think also what I heard from what your idea was is like these are kind of like fantasy spaces, right? So like you would go to, you know, the Sears and sit in the living room to sort of get access to this world you didn't necessarily have access to. Yeah, um, totally. And that like isn't designed per se to do that. And it, well, I mean, I guess it's supposed to want, make you want to buy the things. Right. And I, I actually think like a boat or the ocean, like I, I did not, I was not an ocean. I'm not an ocean guy. Like not I, a seafarer. No, no. I lived in a great lake. It was not <laughs> salty, you know? And so like salty water really like gives me the creeps. And like, I think about sharks and, you know, so I'm like really freaked out by the ocean. So I, I feel like some sort of, some sort of access to like ocean in a, in a like simulated way would be really nourishing and healing. <laughs> I think so. Uh, for me in this project good um but yeah so like i i think it sounds like really the project is crafting this enormous soundstage um that we could play with you know various types of of filmed story yeah (laughs) yeah there that there are lots of good stories out there i often work with like adaptation because i feel like i don't have any good ideas (laughs) interestingly like like the synecdoche, synecdoche, New York, and adaptation. Oh yeah, Charlie Kaufman. Yes, I really I like him a lot. Um, but this uh, this film that I just made is we're you know editing and doing po- post production. We call it mm-hmm. in the industry. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's called Who Knows. And it's based on this Guy de Maupassant short story called uh, Who Knows? <laughs> Kise, I think oh, the French Kise, say. Yeah. Kise, yeah. Uh, and it's, um, it's about this man who's, he's like a misanthropic millionaire. And he goes on quite a bit about why he doesn't like people, but he likes his beautiful things. And one night he comes home from the opera and finds that all of his furniture has come to life and runs out of his house. Oh and my. he's obviously alarmed of course uh and then but he he can't find the furniture and he can't tell anyone what he really saw he so he says it's a burglary and then he kind of goes on this quest and to find his furniture which ends up leading to his cracking up uh so my 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 dream is to make a a triptych of films that are all questions (laughs) So we've done Who Knows, knows? and I found a story called What Was It? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And then one called Was She Mad? (laughs) (laughs) They're all these sort of like macabre uh, tales of like insanity and confused reality. And, you know, I like that. Growing up the son of an occultist, I've always been like, is this really happening? Yeah. (laughs) What's going on? So, so I think I think this project is like a it's a studio, yeah. right? It's an epic, it's like a, a co- cozy's own proje- production. Productions, yeah. But we can we can come up with any sort of name that uh, that suits us, and now that is our task. So to name this, I believe uh, we can say it's a studio. Uh, yeah, I think it's a filmed story studio. Yeah, film filmed story studio, filmed stories studio. Maybe no. Well, it's that's the it's first a bad twister. Idea. Yeah, but it's it's got some. Yeah. Assonance to it. Assonance, yeah. I love that word. Uh, any other uh, 
Is it any other name ideas? Like if it's hard, you know, it's like trying to name a band or an oh, yeah. improv studio. Oh. I mean, an improv team. Team. It's everything's taken. I was even writing. A, I've been working on a, a script where it takes place. Uh, one of the th- it takes place in like a marketing company. Yeah. And I was trying to invent a marketing company name. It's impossible. They're all taken. Oh I was goodness. like, I know. I'm gonna call it Supremacy. It's like such a ridiculous thing. There's Supremacy oh marketing. Jesus. So, the film studios are probably mostly taken. It's all it's all taken, so it's hard. Well, 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 but maybe filmed stories. Filmed, yeah. I don't think that's taken. <laughs> I don't think filmed so. stories studio F S S F S S. That's nice, cause then like you people like people in the know, you just sort of do pss. just hiss in their ear. Yeah, it's like, like oh, that's the sound of money. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. So, yeah, Film Story Studio, a project of the Cozy Zone Foundation by Kevin Townley and Ben Weber. Well, I can't wait. Uh, me neither. Kevin, thank you so much. Thank you. Well, maybe we'll do it again sometime. I, I would love that. All right. Well, I'll see you uh, right after this. Okay, bye-bye. Right, bye. We are intimately finding our peaceful And Ben, he interviews friends, it's awkward and then it's Cozy Zone. Occasionally it's a lovely thing to be nosy in somebody's Cozy Zone. So please, snuggle up sweet, a beautiful thing is. 